Welcome to I Was Told There'd Be Food, a podcast by Jen and Alex about all things academia and history. How do you get academics to attend anything? Well, depending on the hour, something of a stiff drink doesn't hurt, but well, it's always a stimulating conversation. Well, I'm at, okay, so I'm having a glass of wine because we're, we're recording late. We're not in the morning now. Don't worry. It's not wine mm-hmm. with breakfast. That would be a mimosa. But, well, that would be the wine-ish beverage of choice. If I, Anyway, we're right. getting sidetracked. The story is that I was setting up to record and I went to set my uh, glass down without thinking. I was thinking I had my box of trivia cards in that hand and I almost just dumped it down on the chair. <laughs> that would have been the worst party foul ever. So... Well, okay, maybe not the worst one ever, but the worst one right before you're going to record a pod. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I can imagine the disapproving look of the cat sort of staring at the thing that she didn't get to knock mm-hmm. over. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's great it's that we're getting you fun. unfiltered tonight, though, too. I, on the other hand, am only going with a, a I, am, I am the designated potter, I guess, because I just have Diet Coke. Oh, and here you were bringing up stiff drinks. Are you sure you didn't spike it? Uh, or I'm just being helpful about... Looking forward to the rest of the evening's work. I don't know. I don't know. But this is a nice distraction, Jen. Oh, good. Thanks. So, uh, you're apparently working. And I am trying really hard not to do too much work. Well, you've earned it. You've gone through the entire process with the defense and the dissertation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, on the other hand, am getting very close to being done with the first major hurdle, I think, of graduate school, possibly. All of the comprehensive exams. Ooh. That's that's a big milestone. Nope, not yeah. the big milestone. This is the, the medium milestone that is mostly meant. It's, it's sort of there, not exactly to trip you up, I'm sure, but it's more, it's, it's to make sure that you know how to stay light on your intellectual feet, I think. Sure. I mean, I think the two most stressful things about PhD program are the comps and your dissertation defense. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but I don't think, like, just because I've done the defense now doesn't mean I don't remember how stressful comps were, so you don't have to try to downplay. It's good. (laughs) I mean, it's fine. It's not good. It, the stress sucks, but on the other hand, so maybe some of our can, listeners you can feel that maybe some of our listeners can empathize with the process, having gone through it themselves, or maybe some are yet to go through it, and are thinking about how do I prepare myself for this craziness? And it will scare them away. Well, I mean that's part what? of it's it's like the one of the later stages of academic hazing, but <laughs> it's interesting to think about that you and I had very different experiences when it came to the comps. Right. So there are so many different formats. So no matter what, who's ever listening is going to be like, that's not how mine were. Mine, and they've even changed at CMU over time, but mine were just sort of traditional written comprehensive exams. So we are required to have one major field and two minors. Or, or there's other combinations, like two majors, but whatever. I did the, the most common is one major, two minors. And the major is an eight-hour written exam, and the minors are a four-hour written exam. It's kind of crazy and stressful to... The four-hour ones actually go really fast, faster than you think they're going to go. I don't know. A lot of people probably remember the GRE 
But this is where they stick you in the room with nothing but a unconnected to the internet computer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're like sitting in a closet, man, practically. Jumping really on. It's a closet. They store things in there when we're not taking exams. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's stressful, but uh, I don't know. I mean, other people do oral exams. I know at SAMU they switched it. Now there's an oral exam component, which Interesting. is its own extra level of stress. But yeah. So in some ways, I think a lot of people would think what I had was fairly easy. Well, I don't know about easy necessarily, but I can definitely feel certain degrees of, of, of thinking maybe I should have gone for my PhD at CMU instead and gone through that process. Because at least with the, the 16 hours of test taking, then you're done. Uh, the prep mm-hmm. leading up to it is really stressful in the same way, but then you're done. What I have by comparison mm-hmm. is I have to do two historiographical essay papers, uh, a longer and a shorter major topic and a minor topic. And it's an incorporation of, of something like um, 50 and 30 sources, major sources for each paper. And then after that is done, I have to do uh, an oral defense on sort of a miniature scale, much, much less involved than what you would do for a dissertation defense. But basically to say, uh, answer questions that your committee might have about the papers, which they read. Um, and the papers themselves, one of which is managed by your primary advisor, one is managed by your secondary advisor. And once all of that hullabaloo is done, then you can go on to doing the prospectus. Yeah, I mean, comms are like a hurdle to moving on to your perspectives and stuff like that. But I, yeah, I mean, ultimately, comps are really about proving proficiency, um, mostly proving teaching p- proficiency, actually. Oftentimes, your fields of study are very closely tied to what you want to research with your dissertation, so it's also prep for that. Well, and I think the intention of the project is to give you a lot of time to think about subjects related to what you might like to make your dissertation topic, right? So it's the sense of giving you an excuse to prep more in a specialized area. Yeah. I mean, you were mentioning, like, okay, so how do you go about prepping for this stuff? And Uh, um it's a lot of reading, obviously, but you were much more organized than I was. <laughs> I don't know. I might have been a little more neurotic than you were. So I was, <laughs> I was mentioning to Jen listeners a little earlier that I, from about the midway point of year one on the PhD program, I started doing index entries for all of, all of the books and articles and et cetera that I was reading, where I would write, you know, a four or five cent uh, topical summary of four or five sentence topical summary of any text that I read and answering some basic keywords in terms of research subject material and almost like having everything on a, on a four by five index cards which I don't know if those such things exist anymore, but being able to file it away in, in, in the backlogs of my, of my computer hard drive so that when it comes down to um, both the process of having to write very concise summaries of very complex historical arguments, I have some practice with that, and I know what I can reference back to, and I don't necessarily have to do tons of brand new reading for the comps themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's really smart. And I sort I started doing a little bit of that not quite as well but a lot of the faculty I worked with was studying expected um like short one page reviews of books and that was really useful and obviously then I had those to go back and study from Mm -hmm. I mean it's great to write a book review for two reasons one you get practice writing book reviews and two it's 
a really good study guide because obviously you're highlighting the argument, but you're also hopefully drawing out some pertinent evidence and key components. So you have just a little bit more there. Um, But yeah, I wish I had done something like your index thing. Well, I mean, there's the, the thing with this kind of exercise is it's never the wrong time to start doing it if you're going to be an academic That's of any true. kind. You really just need to be squirreling these things away constantly as you're going along. Right. And start whenever, because like we've talked about the fact that you sort of, you had a better sense of what you were doing with grad school. And I started with the master's without really thinking I was going to do the PhD. So there were a lot of things I read during my master's that were very relevant when I started my PhD work, but I didn't have all of those notes and things. I mean, I when I started, I actually still prefer handwritten notes, but obviously they're not searchable. Mm-hmm. And so I switched to doing everything on computers, but that made it really complicated when I was trying to find the notes for the thing that I remembered reading. And sometimes I had to just go back and pull the book out again. And having keywords uh, associated with this does help a bit in that respect. It's actually been weird in the sense that over the last like eight or 10 months, I've been very heavily drafting myself back into doing almost all my notes by hand. And even a lot of my writing, I've started to do rough drafts by hand now instead, just because I feel it's a lot easier for me to get over the the blank page syndrome. But it also means a lot more work in terms of then you have to translate all of your handwritten notes into electronic notes and make sure they're in a place that you can find them again. And eventually things get very big and unwieldy if you don't use a filing system that makes sense to you. Or unless you're using bibliographic software, like we mentioned last week's episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think organization becomes the key, but I think everybody is going to organize themselves differently, and that's okay. Um, Yeah. But I would say, like, as soon as you realize you are going to be taking comprehensive exams, figure out how to best organize everything you read, even if it's not relevant to the comp you're taking, just because it could be relevant someday, And, or you could be teaching. I've done that too, where I've been teaching and I've pulled out like a book review or something I've written because that's a much faster way of, yes, right. That is the argument from that book. I want to bring that into the lesson. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a really good practice to have. I think it's good too to jump on a topic that you brought up earlier that in writing the one page book review type of a process too, same way with writing these index entries for me, you get a very good sense of how to how to clearly and quickly articulate the argument of, of a book or of an article. And it's helpful because that's exactly the kind of concise writing that you're going to need in academia. Because very, in very few situations are you going to be expected to have like overly verbose and flowery language anywhere, ever. But if right. in five sentences you can topically analyze, you know, a 500-page volume, that's good. Yeah. That's good. I mean, the types of questions they're going to ask you are going to be heavily historiographical. Yep. So that's one major reason you keep track of those things. Depending, it could be highly thematic. Explain the changes over time for, like, I did U.S. religious history, and I had to sort of essentially describe the factors that altered U.S. religious history from the colonies through 
present day? You know, that was one of my mm -hmm. questions. Uh, uh, Great Awakening. Uh, Joseph Smith. Um, <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. You got two. You're good. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, I mean, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm trying to... Yeah. Okay, see... I <laughs> The handicap of minor a few years ago. So I'm trying to remember what I was asked. Oh, another common question is if you were going to be teaching this course and you had to prepare a syllabus, what would you have your students read and why? Or give a brief out, or probably in addition, give a brief outline of what your course would cover and look like. And, and why would you make those choices? Um, those are really common questions. It's, it's not so on you. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so one of the really great things to try to do is actually just create syllabuses. Well, and I would say it's actually pretty common as far as I've heard that a lot of programs require you to create at least one syllabus as part of your comprehensive exams to be able to show yeah. here's a degree proficiency with I can, I can actually teach a class if I need to. Right. And some, some are doing that. And I had to actually, uh, with one of my advisors, develop a full course syllabus. And that was great. And it's so awesome to have it because I've applied for some things where I was able to pull that out and say, look, I can teach this class now. Like, I'm ready to go. And if you, even if you're not going into education to be a professor or an instructor or a teacher or anywhere, I think it's still a useful exercise in that like with the index cards and book reviews, it requires you to organize your thoughts and usually organizing multiple strains of thoughts into one format, which, again, I think will help you. It's like with doing a rough draft of anything else. You then lay the framework for arguments you can make later and make several times over, and it makes the writing process that much easier, I, yeah. I would say, anyway. Unfortunately, so you know I don't... what was really hard about my comps? Um, Windows 98. <laughs> um, no, so I should I should thing... clarify it's on the computer she was given, not that she was taking her comps twenty years ago, listeners. <laughs> no, what I was thinking about is uh, so they've changed it. They don't let you spread your comps out very much anymore. But before it was kind of you took one when you were ready to take it, and so I had taken my minor fields before my uh, required year abroad. And then I was supposed to be reading during my year abroad to prep for my major field. I mean, I'd already been reading, but like that was, you know, a major thing I was supposed to be doing. So I took my little reading list from my advisor and I couldn't get any of the books that he had, like the libraries just had different things. And so I would read them, but it was like, but at the same time, it's not okay because it's not the materials I'm required to know about. But when you're in another country, yes, they have the internet. I could have bought them all, but then what am I going to do with them? Do you know how heavy books are? I wasn't going to be able to lug them back across the ocean without paying a lot of money for my luggage. So yeah, it was a really slow process. So I thought I was going to come back and take my comp like right away. And then I kept like, let me have a little more time. Let me have the summer. Let me have. So I got back at the end of the spring term and I took my last comp in at the end of October because I just kept pushing it off. And then it realized, then I realized that was stupid. Like I should have just buckled down studied really hard and taken it sooner but i don't know yeah never mind Comps getting, always seem insurmountable until you do it never mind getting used to living back in this country after being away for a year well you know which <laughs> side do we drive on again 
Anyway, um, so any, anything about the comps that you would recommend in terms of selecting topics as well? Because you should have some leeway in terms of selecting what type of material you'd like to look at for your comps, like you specifically with religious history or with African history or me looking at specifically early modern history or the history of the physical sciences or things of that nature. Other than just what are you interested in, is there is there any strategic additional advice that you would offer? I would say think about what it is you're intending to do. And if you are intending to stay in academia, you need to think about what combination of things will make you the most marketable. U.S. history with a side of European or vice versa, probably not the most sought after thing right now. So you should actually familiarize yourself with the job market, which will change before you get out there, but you can look at trends and you can see some diversifications probably in order. And and then think about what else is out there that you would be interested in doing and specializing in. And this is the time to think about doing it if you're just prepping to think about your comps in the next year or two. Because oftentimes, if it's available to you, you will have the benefit of an advisor on your faculty who is already an expert in that particular subfield and can actually push you and challenge you to develop a knowledge base that you know, somebody else might be spending several years studying towards, mm-hmm. but, but you are given the opportunity for diversifying on your own time and time here, or, yeah. you know, diversifying I, quickly. I, I would say that the other thing I would do is, depend. it all depends on the structure of your program, but he, what I wound up doing for my studies was a combination of taking coursework and then, like, individual-focused readings courses with, like, one-on-one with a faculty member. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that combination and not just doing all readings courses because I think that we all benefit from the intellectual stimulation of classes of the give and take and the I saw this in there and we'll wait, but isn't this more important or whatever. And that back and forth, it challenges you and I think it makes you think about a book in a very thorough way and through other people's perspectives. And when it's just one-on-one you and, and a faculty advisor it's good in that you can be very, very focused on your advisor's expertise and what you saw in the book. But I don't know. I just, I really think you benefit a lot when you talk to a group of people. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's it's a bit less, it's a bit more open form in that you can make of it what you would like and not always have a heavily directed experience of you must read this and this and this and sort of conceptualize these three works in the same context as these other three works, which is important in its own right, but it's it's also very almost formulaic in that way too, which can weigh you down, yeah. can weigh you down. So I don't know, what, what advice do we really give out? I mean, comps are going to be scary, but you will actually get through it and you, oh, that's another thing. You will never feel smarter than the day you passed your comps you will, because you will have been focused so like so much for so long and then you pass. So somebody validates all that stuff you've been remembering and then you're going to forget like half of it, but that's okay. Yeah. No, maybe not half of it. Well, but you do for, <laughs> you're not going to feel quite as smart as in that moment. Does when it you validate? Come to your dissert- hmm? Does when it... you come to your dissertation offense, you'll feel 
a bit of that again, but you're at this point so narrowly focused on something. When you do your comps, it's broader because you got to know everything. Also, probably some languages on top of everything else. But I don't know <laughs> if it's I don't know if it's proper consolation for how dumb you feel while you're preparing for them. Yeah, that's the thing. Everybody told me beforehand it'll be fine. You know more than you think you do. It's not that bad. And I couldn't believe it. And then I took them and I was like, oh, right. It wasn't that bad. But I think it's just a process. Like nobody's going to convince you. You just got to go through it. Yeah. 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 That's why I'm going to be writing more when we're done recording. But for, <laughs> but for right now, All listeners... right, well, let's get you back to stressing about your work. So let's do some history trivia challenge. All right. So I, I may as well start with you this week. Okay. So, so, Jen, what Scandinavian country last fought in a war in 1814? I'm going with Sweden. It is Sweden. Woohoo! Nice job. It's kind of a little bit of process of elimination. Well, yeah, yeah. Trying to think if there were any money. Well, anyway. Because Norway was invaded. I mean, they kind of had that. I'm pretty sure Norway also fought in World War One, technically. Did they? And so I wasn't really sure about that, but I knew there was that. And then Finland had been... I mean, Finland. Right next to Russia. It's always getting tangled up, right? Yeah, well, they, fought, well, they, they fought wars with Russia in the 20s uh, mm -hmm. fairly right. recently. Right, so that's why I was just like, I don't know when each place last Denmark had a thing, was invaded. but Sweden Iceland was part of World War II. Yep. <clears throat> okay, here you go. This one I just found interesting. Uh, maybe for people. What president was formerly U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and head of the CIA? Was he both before being the president? How much should I give you? Uh, to the UN and head of the CIA. Uh, it was before. It was before? It was before. The only one whose personality I think really fits for all those opportunities, was it Eisenhower? Mm, no, it was H.W. Bush. Huh. I suppose that also fits. Mm -hmm. that, that does make sense. I mean, I knew... I didn't remember that he'd been ambassador to the UN, but I knew he was the head of the CIA. And I just always find that kind of fascinating tidbit that a lot of people don't know. That's why I thought I'd ask you. I mean, I actually thought you might know, but I just thought it'd be interesting. No, no, I wasn't aware that he was either of those positions in a, in a former life. Can I ask you a science and nature question just because? Sure. I claim no actual, you know, credentials no, in science. Just, this question is too great to not ask. Okay. okay. How many... Of every 10 cats will survive a six-story fall. A six-story fall. Actually, you know, it's weird because there is an entire subfield of, of, of like terminal height velocity regarding cats in that if cats fall from a relatively low height of up to about uh, anything over about 100 feet, above 100 feet, below six feet, roughly speaking, cats are fine. Because either mm -hmm. the fall is not terribly far, or they've got more than enough time to right themselves, and then they sort of okay, flatten okay. out into the squirrel. I'm going to say... You're avoiding. Just answer the question. Nine out of ten cats. You're correct. But here's the thing. What kind of sick research was this? Launching cats out of six-story windows to see who would survive. I, again, oh I, don't, I don't think... Because I think this might be connected to the same research, who's the, the exact name of the researcher, I can't remember. But it's a fairly well-known study, at least on the internet, about you know <laughs> the terminal velocity of cats from certain heights. Uh -huh. Basically, as long as your cat doesn't fall out of like a three-story window, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Which is great for me on the third story. I think I'm going to be outraged about cat tossing. Yeah, <laughs>
Well, fortunately, this is a history show. Okay. All right. Well, it's time to go. So thanks for joining us this week. You can contact us at academicsneedfood at gmail.com or tweet us at IWTTBFpod. Thanks to Brian Jones for our music. And it's time to go because we We should should be be writing. writing.